tuning into Power Athlete Radio. Grit is not accidental, particularly in kids. It's the result of carefully dosed stimuli, including risk, failure, hardship, and payoff. And it's exactly why gritty kids grow into even grittier adults. But the opportune word there is grow. Author Angela Duckworth is here to discuss her book, Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance, and shed some light on the essential components to continue that growth. A combination of support and push drives a child or an adult or a power athlete to achieve something that they could not have foreseen for themselves. Whether you're a parent or a coach or both, you know that you must stress to progress. Learn the nuances of creating your little resilient child army of the future. This is episode 301. Gotta make this run no time. A little white pill for them little white lines I'm smoking. It's that time again. Your co-host here, Luke Summers, <laughs> the power athlete and co-host Tex McQuilkin featuring John Wellborn. It's the time for another episode of the Premier Podcast in Strength and Condition. Man, I hope that light goes. Uh, yeah, you no, know, it's the round it's, sound. It's, they, we probably Callie, don't have surround sound. Callie, you're going to need to pan that left and right, okay? <laughs> so pan left and right. Callie, our producer, everybody. Ladies and gentlemen, we are super excited for today's show. Very excited. It's uh, I, I, I bet you this is the only guest that we've all actually read her information in prepping for this. 100%. And it was timely for me because, like, this all... I'm, I have to come back and read this because of... Impending Sparky, uh, you know, got a little baby on the way. Sparky Summers, yeah, Sparky I like Summers. It. She's going to be coming insane. to the center stage. We have oh, Sparky. No. no, it doesn't work. That's exactly. why he did it doesn't it. work. <laughs> exactly. Uh, coming to the center stage, was we have forced. Mercedes. Yeah, ooh, Mercedes Summers. Uh, <laughs> Lexus. I was once forced into one of those gentlemen's clubs, John, with. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, hey, dude, this is coming out on Women's Day. I understand. This is Women's Day. There was Let's clean it up a little bit. A server at this club named Summer Summers. Ooh. That's what she said, at least. But enough about that. Let's talk about uh, our guest. No. No, we're Let's talking talk about Lean about and Able. Lean and Able people. A, a program. One of our programs in our programming catalog that is absolutely perfect for the dude or the chick who is just short on time or new to this whole training thing. Yeah. The whole idea of onboarding and we get questions from people, where do I start? How do I get into this? The power athlete methodology and all these different programs, they look pretty advanced. What's and they the, are. Yeah, no, I mean, they are. They take a um, you know, fairly decent amount of equipment. They take a little bit of, of uh, ingenuity know-how. and know-how and skill. But what we needed to do is almost create a program that allowed the beginner or the person who had gotten out of shape that needs to get back in it and doesn't have a, or doesn't have a, a, you know, a large block of time to get into training. So Lean Enable was the result. Yeah, so what it, we, we tailored it for an individual who has a, a membership at a big box gym. LA Fitness or uh, Gold's Gym or Equinox who don't endorse this show, nor do we endorse those locations. Uh, but, you know, someone who's comfortable training in that lo- location or if you have a home gym. Yeah, or traveling for work. Or tra- Very yeah, hotel, hotel gym, gym friendly. Totally. Uh, so that that's how the program's laid out. You get exposure to our warm-ups that help with trunk stability, spinal health, uh, tons of unilateral work, tons of dumbbell, kettlebell work. And if you're a dude or a chick who like knows their way around a barbell, you can sub that barbell in 
at any time, right? For any of the compound of strength work, just throw in a barbell and it works. Like it's, it's awesome. 35 to 50 minutes and you're in and out of the gym, full body every day. If you get consistently three to four days, people are crushing it on this thing. So it's awesome program. Check it out. Powerathletehq.com slash lean and able. That's spelled out lean, L-E-A-N and A-N-D, able. A B L E. Oh, I thought he was going to make a mistake. I thought I was too. Did you see like yeah, my eyes? Yeah, you were like, <laughs> and McQuilkin's over there cross-eyed. He's like, enough about us. Enough about the co-host and the featured guest. Let's talk about the real guest, not the pity guest that we invite just because they got nothing better to do. <laughs> no, like, oh, God, that's what actually I feel like I am. I'm just like the uh, I'm like the consolation prize for Power Athlete <laughs> Radio. And then and here we have uh, this Walborn guy still here. I'm like, I feel the same. People, we have another New York Times bestselling author on dude I'm telling you nobody has as good no, a guess as we do. And, and you know what like I know everybody's raving about Joe Rogan Joe Rogan Who? but yeah exactly like he's had Andy Stump on we've had him on dozens of times <laughs> Andy Stump has has Angela Duckworth been on Joe Rogan I don't know good question maybe probably not <laughs> probably not <laughs> you know why because ah, like at the end of the day uh, it's really about consistency and quality of the guests and I think in in terms of really podcasts out there, um, nobody is able to meet our like roster of guests. It's unbelievable. So without further ado, we have Angela Duckworth on New York Times bestselling author of Grit. What's the subtitle? The Power of Passion and Perseverance. Ooh. It's an amazing book. Three I highly piece. recommend it. It is. It's awesome. If you're a parent, if you're a manager, if you're an individual who feels like they're a scumbag. If you're a human. If you're a human. And you can't even read like me. Just get the audiobook. But no, this is an awesome talk. Sadly, we only talked for three to four hours. <laughs> Just kidding. One hour. You're going to love it, people. Let's get into it. Another episode of the Premier Podcast in Strength and Condition. Ing. Ing. Ing? <laughs> but Angela, I guess uh, we, we know your work well, and uh, you know we reference it quite a bit. Mm-hmm. I guess if our listeners don't know who you are, why don't you give them a little, you know, your spiel about your background, what you've accomplished with your book, Grit, and, you know, what your passion is. I'm Angela Duckworth. I'm a professor of psychology at University of Pennsylvania, and I'm also the CEO of a nonprofit that is trying to help parents and teachers do a better job, and that's called Character Lab. So my passion has been, for 15 years, the study of grit and the study of self-control. Um, essentially, I'm, I'm interested in the psychology of human effort. Like, why do we try sometimes? Why do we give up sometimes? Who lasts longer? Who packs it up and goes home earlier? And um, that's really the focus of my research. Before I was a scientist who studied the psychology of effort, I was a teacher, and I was trying to get kids to you know, put more effort into their schoolwork in particular. I think that's part of where my scientific interest came from, like my inability to do that very well as a teacher uh, and my desire to understand the science of it so I could, you know, help other teachers do a better job. Um, And uh, I will say that uh, I also grew up in a family with a father who was uh, obsessed with achievement. And I think, you know, that, you know, definitely influenced my own interest is I, you know, in a way was like a bit of an underdog and, you know, wanted to prove him wrong about what I could do. 
somehow earn our parents approval or like prove them right or wrong i guess you know every kid probably doesn't want to like all of a sudden be like god uh, i'm exactly the person that my parents thought i would be or let them know? down or or no be like i knew you were never going to now for uh, amount to nothing and you're like ah damn it they caught me so yeah no i think that that uh you know Freud is not very popular these days. Of course, Freud thought everything went back to, you know, how you related to your parents. And uh, I, I think there's obviously, you know, a lot more to say about like why we want what we want. But that said, of course, you know, our parents are the people who uh, are, you know, our role models and the people we most want to make proud, I think, for um you know, certainly the time that we're young, but I think for many of us, it just it carries on its legacy uh, for the rest of our lives. I was always fascinated by, uh, you know, like uh, success, like where people come from, especially I, I, I played for the Eagles for five years. So when you said Penn, but, um, you know, playing 10 years in the NFL, uh, I was always interested about who makes it and who doesn't. And so I'd always rap with guys about how they, you know, uh, their upbringing, you know, and looking for common threads. And of course, there really wasn't any common threads and the only one that i found that was pretty common was every one of them had a mother that was extremely hard on them and very demanding uh and it was this just really interesting thing like every guy was like yeah my mom was uh, i was scared to come home and tell my mom i did something bad my mom was this like authority figure and uh every guy I knew who was very successful had this uh you know, very kind of almost strong, like fear of their moms, like, Hey, like, dude, my mom's going to kill me if I don't do this. Or like my mom is, uh, you know, pretty tough on me. And I just thought it was pretty interesting that that was universal for all the NFL guys I played with. What, what about dads? Did you, did you not see that with, you know, was it like you had to have a parent who was demanding, but, but supportive or, or was it really moms? Uh, well, uh, and this is where it gets tricky is because the demographic is probably largely black. A lot of them came from single families and didn't really have a relationship with their fathers. Yeah. Um, so, but even the guys that I knew who had two parents in the home, uh, their mom was always like a very, very strong figure. Um, like my dad was, uh, uh, you know, he since passed away, but uh, super smart, graduated high school at like 16, uh, graduated college fairly early, and then um, was a, an attorney and was a practicing uh, defense, criminal defense attorney for over 55 years. And so, uh, you know, he was extremely smart and very condescending about it. And I wasn't kidding. And uh, my mom, on the other hand, was uh, kind of a scary individual for a long, long time. I remember Andy Reid asking my mom, he's like, uh, you know, for a middle class white kid, uh, you know, John's pretty tough out there. He doesn't take a lot of shit. And my, and my mom got mad at him. And she's like, well, why should he? What do you think he's going to get pushed around? And I remember Andy came over me. He's like, oh, your mom's not kidding around. She's a pretty serious player. I'm like, you ain't kidding, dude. She is, she is uh, always, you know, been very on the ball and very aggressive in that way. So it just was kind of just an interesting thing, man. Like uh, a lot of the guys never were, you know, this big thing about their dads, but it was always, uh, you know, the mom figure was, you know, just kind of a paramount deal. Well, outside of sports um, and in, in research on parenting, it's pretty clear that this combination of being, uh, demanding beyond what you want to give actually at the time, right? I mean, the whole point of demanding is like, you think eight is good enough. And they're like, no, what about nine and 10, right? Like that, that combination of demanding with, um, unconditional support, like, yes, it's not good enough, but you're good enough. Like the performance isn't good enough, but you know, you don't have to doubt that I love you or that you're the center of my universe. I think that combination of 
a demanding parent and a supportive parent, um, which by the way, I, I, in my own interviews, I, I sometimes find it's like one parent plays the role of like ridiculously demanding. The other parent is the one who is like unconditionally supportive, but um but the combination is, uh, you know, clearly the best parenting. I mean, whether you grow up to be a professional athlete or, um, you know, just predicting happiness and, um, and overall functioning. So uh, that's, I think, those are the jobs of the parent, right? Like, can I show up and be demanding, but also um, can I be uh, 100% supportive? But that's not easy to like to be consistently on. Right. So, I mean, there's this interesting cycle of you have to be gritty to raise a gritty little uh, nugget. Luke's uh, Luke's wife is pregnant. And I keep telling him that when you're a parent, uh, there's no off. No, I like, got it. I, I got know, system. but uh, the first, first time I'm, there, are we talking first child? First child. I got it all figured out, I, Angela. I all have, figured that's out. That's right, because you haven't had one yet. <laughs> I have twin daughters, and I remember uh, my daughters were pretty young, and I remember my wife and I went to an event or something. We came home, and I had a couple drinks, and I remember I went to bed, and at like 2 in the morning, it was like all hell broke loose. Kids crying. They're thrown up out of both ends, you know, like just it was like pandemonium. I remember thinking like, they don't care that I have a, had a few drinks. It's just like, and at yeah, that point, in the morning. they don't care. Yeah, about yeah anything, no, right? no, they don't care about anything. And like, I remember thinking like the job of the parent, like uh, you come out and if you go out and have a few drinks, you get overserved. Um, it's guaranteed that the kids are going to put you to the test <laughs> that night. So it's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, I have kids too. I have stories like that as well. Um, and uh, yeah, no, there's nothing harder than parenting, I think. And um, uh, I think this, you know, it comes down to like, so say your kid comes home and they want to quit track, right? Like, is this the time to be supportive? Is this the time to be demanding? Or ideally, how, how do I do both at the same time? Um, like, how do you pull off that, right? And, um, and, and I'll tell you, you know, even though I study this for a living, I, it was never easy for me. My kids are still uh, at home. They're in high school. They're teenagers. And it's, it's still not easy. But at least it, I think it gives you what you're striving for, right? You're like, oh, you know, kids in general um, are not going to raise their own expectations. Like you have to set standards for them. Um, I mean, I, I seriously don't know any kid who's like, I'd, you know, like to sit down and do something hard right now that takes a lot of practice and concentration with feedback. I mean, parents have to set those challenges down and they, they should strive to like create a base of security where, you know, I'm sure if you went home and asked your kids, like, you know, do I love you? Like, you know, do you ever do you wonder whether like you're the center of the universe for me? I'm sure they have no doubt. And that is the combination, you know, like the, that's what you're aiming for. Not easy, but I think it gives you a kind of a North star. Do you, do you think parenting's changed? Um, and I kind of think about this when I was a kid, I kind of felt like we were like, uh, the adjunct into our family. Like, uh, we came home, we did our stuff, but like, uh, the circle or like the, the world didn't revolve necessarily around us and my brothers. And now I feel like as a parent, uh, like it's a lot more kid centric. I almost kind of felt like, uh, sometimes my parents treat us with like, you know, like uh, stray dogs almost, <laughs> you know, like, uh, we'll feed them if they're home. If not, you know, we'll go on without you. Whereas like right. now it's like, we're so hyper-focused on the kids and like this and then, like safety and the whole deal. Um, like I was just at home last weekend and my brother Ed and I were laughing all like the crazy things that we did as kids that my mom didn't and parents didn't know about. And then we'll since tell them and my mom will be like, what was I doing when you guys were doing this? 
<laughs> and we're like, no idea. Like, um, my brother and I, like we grew up in Torrance and Palos Verdes area and we rode our bikes like 26 miles. I was like not even 10 years old on our single, uh, like BMX bike. We rode it to LAX and back in a day. We <laughs> left like eight in the morning and got home at five o'clock at night. My mom didn't even ask where we were. We had no water, no money, no cell phone, nothing, just our bikes and us. And we rode for like, I mean, probably a better part of nine hours. <laughs> and uh, we got home and my mom was like, well, good thing you're home for dinner. And we like washed up and I remember we sat down and we never discussed it. And my brother and I were laughing about it. My mom was like, where was I? What was I doing? We're like, I don't know. We just saw I a Saturday, got up and rode our bikes. I think, yes. You're, uh, if you have sensed that there has been a shift in what is normal and expected in terms of like how much time parents should spend with their kids, which has gone up um, a lot. Uh, and also how much um, oversight, right? How much, you know, I don't know, intervention or like, you know, meddling, if you want to call it that. Um, I, I, I'm pretty sure that's gone up as well. I know time with kids has, has gone up. I mean, you know, of course, like people have opinions about whether that's good or bad. Um, I think that, uh, you know, kids do need to like, scrape their knees and bruise their shins um, a little bit. I'm not advocating for like, you know, letting your kids like do things that are potential. I mean, like would I let my kid ride to the Philadelphia airport on their BMX bike and back? Like, um, I don't think so, mm -hmm. but I do, I do worry a little bit that parents kind of uh, like bubble wrap their kids. And I would hope like that they could. You know, well, not that they should. Well, but, uh, but that they could. So, does so, that make sense? So, just, just to give you some background, uh, we were in Newport Beach, uh, Orange County, and I remember my little girls were about three years old, and uh, we had like a pretty good sized lawn, and they were out there playing outside on the lawn, and I was kind of standing in the doorway watching, and a car pulled up, and this lady got out and started looking around, and I kind of yelled at her. I was like, "I'm over here." They're okay. She's like, well, I wanted to make sure I saw the kids out here. Just wanted you to know it's illegal for the kids to be out here by themselves. Hmm. Wow. And I, I like, <laughs> I kind of laughed and I didn't hurl insults at her, but I was like, we're good. Just get in your car and go away. And I remember thinking like, we got to go. And we ended up selling and these guys were here and like, we packed up and uh, I bought 16 acres here in Austin, Texas. <laughs> and we live like out in the middle of the country and my kids run around outside and they play and our neighbors have horses. Um, and I was like, I'm done living in a place where your kids can't play out outside without somebody pulling up to call the police on you. And right. I just, it, it was the wrong environment for us. And I'm so much happier out here because the kids like yesterday, they literally were gone for a couple hours, run around, playing the yeah. creek. They have forts and do all that. And I, well, when we, when we were leaving, uh, Tex and I, they came running, running out of the woods right up here, yeah. John, like with sticks to come hit us with it. And little <laughs> cash, he was there and he's like, wait for me. And then ran right into thorn bushes and then like got up kind of dusted it off and kept going yeah. and then fell again. Then he started to cry. Like it was just, it was funny to watch him just do his thing. So <laughs> my tumble little, around my little girls laughing. are, uh, my little girls are seven and then my little boy's three and, uh, they literally run around like wild kids. And, um, it's great. Uh, like to me, it makes me happy to see that opposed from living in Newport beach. So and Angela, right. have you heard the term a lawnmower parent? Uh, no, I haven't. What does that mean? So I'm sure you're familiar with helicopter where they're hovering. Well, lawnmower is the opposite of grit. Basically, you take away any obstacle that's out in front of your kid. Oh, Make it real easy. Like yeah, a bulldozer. Mow it down. Yeah, like I'd call it bulldozer. Yeah, like a bulldozer, bulldozer parent. parent. But I guess maybe that doesn't have this, like, doesn't roll off your tongue. Well, maybe people don't know what a bulldozer is. Mm. 
Yeah, Fair enough. Well, I, I think uh, helicopter parenting and lawnmower parenting, as those, you know, <laughs> metaphors suggest, are like really not great ideas for it's not. Look, you know, uh, people only develop in ways that they have to. Right. Like we're incredibly adaptive organisms like, you know, anybody's ever broken an arm or a leg will tell you like how quickly your muscles will atrophy when you don't have to use them, like just the way the human body is. And it's the way the human mind is also like we lose skills that we don't practice. And I think kids, if we want them to be strong and confident and resilient, um, when they have no practice with challenge or with failure or setbacks, um, you know, it, it's, it's not uh, adaptive for them to like develop these things without those necessities. And anyway, they won't. Um, that said, uh, obviously, like, I don't want to trip kids while they're like running to the bus stop, you know, just, just, I got no problem with that. (laughs) (laughs) How you guys feel about it. Um, but you know, life usually presents enough like challenges and obstacles without you creating them. Right. You just have to like not insulate your kids too much. And again, like all the while making them feel secure. So I don't know if you guys know about attachment theory, but, um, you know, I do think that kids should feel securely attached to their, um, to their, caregiver, usually it's a parent, obviously. And from that secure base, they have the confidence to do things like, you know, get on their bike and, you know, go on an adventure for the day, uh, because they're not really, they know they have somewhere to come home to. So I think that's the paradox is that if you want kids to be um, exploring, of course, they need like a foundation. Um, But we shouldn't, we shouldn't overprotect them, I think. So you spend a lot of time digging into uh, these kind of, uh, paragons of grit and in the book and in your studies, as you come to through your research, how much time did you spend on the other end of the spectrum? Kind of looking for causation for like complete lack of grit. Mm. (laughs) And then even on the child side, like how much time did, if any, or are you aware of, of like talking to the parent to understand the mindset of what makes it right to, to Uh shield and protect? Your child, like oh, God, that's uh, sub question. Uh, is there a term for like the complete end of the other spectrum than grit? Like anti grit, smooth, soft, grit, spelt, yeah. spelt, <laughs> uh, veal, like a uh, veal, you know, like uh, like the you know, veal, like you, yeah, uh, uh, wagyu. I will consider all of them. Um, okay, great question. Um, no, I, I you know, I had I, I've spent a lot more time, you know, trying to understand like the Steve Youngs of the world than I yeah. have. Um, you know, trying to understand who people who completely lack it. I think in part because, you know, when somebody is uh, really struggling, there's, there's often, you know, just a myriad, like just so many explanations, right? Like maybe they're depressed, you know, maybe, you know, the obstacles really are like impossible. Um, Maybe they just don't care about that particular thing. Like maybe they don't want to be there. So it's harder to actually understand the causes of, the deficit of grit than it is to, um, in some ways, I think, like understand the extraordinary presence of passion and perseverance. Um, but it is a really good question. I think um, if you ask me, you know, why is it so hard to be gritty, right? I mean, why is it just like come natural, like breathing? You know, we all breathe. You don't need books on how to breathe. Uh, I don't know. Uh, text, okay. text just did go to a seminar about breathing. And get what they they ha- guess what they had him do. Hold his fucking breath. <laughs> or oh, you're at a breathing seminar. And the best to part, hold your breath and exercise. And the best is it's it amazing. was it was six hundred dollars. People paid six hundred bucks to go for. 
All right. Well, that okay. I would love to hear more about. And look, mindfulness and breathing. Oh, I know. God. Pay attention to your breath. It's, it's like, yeah, there's some there's some value there. But uh, there are things that you don't really need to like ask. Like, oh, why is it so so so? Why is it so hard to like stick with something for a long time? And um, uh, so I have thought about that a lot, right? And I think there's like two, like there's two parts to grit, right? There's the perseverance part. That's the part people think is the hard part, right? Like, you know, getting up after you fall down, um, you know, getting into the game again after you've just like screwed up a play, um, practicing your weaknesses. That is hard, but I don't think it's as hard as the passion part, honestly. I think there are a lot of people who are very hard workers. They have a great work ethic. They even are pretty resilient, but they don't know what they want to do. Like they don't have a passion. Um, they're not thinking about something voluntarily obsessed by it all the time. That's what passion looks like in the extreme. And I think for people who don't have that direction, um, that is really hard for them to figure out like how to, um, how to find that in their life. Yeah. And that, I mean, it sounds like that could be due to just lack of experience, right? You talk a little bit about like you have to sample, almost have like a sample platter of experience in your life or even in your work life or developmental stage to be like, to understand well, if, do I really like finance or maybe no, I'm a but I mean, architect? When you're a kid, like uh, being able to provide your children with as many opportunities as a hand, uh -huh. uh, like for example, uh, I, I don't even know how, oh, we watched... Uh, I watched a documentary on Egypt and I made my kids watch it. My daughter is obsessed with Egypt and I got her books about Egypt. She, uh, first grade, they ask, you know, what do you want to be? Kids are like, I want to be a fireman. I want to be a cook. And she's like, I want to be an Egyptologist. Wait, you got to show her the flat earth documentary. Uh, I can't do it. What if um, she, what if she but, becomes a flat but earther? So for Christmas, she asked, I want to visit the pyramids. Uh, our summer project was she categorized all the old kings and the new kings and all the royalty in Egypt and like was able to go through the Nile and go through and like name them all. And she knows all the gods. And we like did this whole this whole project of like Egyptology. And she's obsessed with like Egypt and, the, and reads these books. And it's like. Uh, from this documentary that I thought was pretty neat that I made her watch on Netflix and is like spurred this whole thing. So my thing is you have to be able to provide as much opportunity and show them as many things, like whether it be like traveling or this, I mean, what, like just, you never know what's going to stick. How did I know that Jamie would become obsessed with Egypt? I really I didn't. I think so. You guys are agreeing that it's about tasting, right? Like, you know, you walk down the buffet line, you don't really know what it tastes like until you put it in your mouth. Right. So I completely agree. I think that look, I teach at an Ivy league university. These kids are wonderful and they're super smart. They've mostly, I mean, some of these kids have literally never gotten anything but an A. Um, but a lot of them really struggle. Like they graduate and they're 22 and you're like, Oh, well, you know, what are you interested in? I'm not even asking the question, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Too much pressure. I'm just asking what you're interested in. And there's just like a lot of stuttering and hesitation. It's like, what? How can you be 22 and not know what you're interested in? And I think you cannot think your way into your interests. You cannot like reflect your way. I mean, you have to try stuff. Um, you know, one of the people that I studied for my book was a Roberto Diaz, who's a, you know, Grammy award-winning viola player he's the head of curtis music academy which is twice as hard to get into as juilliard he knows a lot about music and if you ask him how he got interested in the viola i mean he played the violin first when he was a young boy his parents were both professional musicians um and he played it very well and he you know um was doing that for a few years but you know he didn't really like 
click with it for whatever reason. Then he played soccer a lot. And then, you know, they moved his family and there just wasn't a good soccer team where he landed. So decided to go back to music a little bit. And he picked up the viola, which is just like the violin, but like a little bigger, right? Um, I'm not a musician. So like, that's my appreciation of the difference in the viola and violin. <laughs> and like, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a different sound slightly. And he was like, oh, and then, you know, uh, you know, it became a love affair. He's like, I'll never be bored. And I was like, what? How how could that be? And he's like, you know, the viola has a, a voice like a human. It's like, you know, it's in this range, et cetera. But look, it's like the Egypt thing, right? You can't predict it in advance. You can't like sit down with a pencil and a piece of paper and then you have to try things. It's very inefficient, by the way. Um, scientists like to call this process sampling. So it's, you know, very similar language to what you guys are using and it's trial and error. Now, I think one thing parents can do is you can observe your kids and you can see patterns that are probably not um, obvious to them. So with my own daughter, I could see that she was interested in um, like baking and, um, and, and also just like art, you know, right? And I would say things like, I think you're interested in baking and art. And she would be like, what are you talking about? So in, in weird ways, interests sometimes at their very beginning are unconscious and, and a careful observer, like a, like a great parent can like pick up on things and like, you'll see that she's interested in Egypt and you'll, you'll just think like, oh, I think I know why she's interested. I'm not going to, I'm going to let her sample this other thing, which is like kind of, you know, in that family. So I, I think parents have a role to play, but it's the, the take home message is that I think passion comes from experiencing something that you, uh, you know, become really engaged in and you like, uh, and then later passion needs purpose. So most people, and I'm guessing you guys would say this about even your show, right? Like, you know, when you get out of bed at five in the morning or earlier, it's not just because you're interested in what you do or that it's pleasurable or enjoyable. It's, it's usually that you feel like it has meaning and purpose. And when you probe people on what that, you know, comes from, it's from feeling like the work is making somebody else's life better. So, you know, in the full maturity of a passion, it's not just interest, it's also purpose. My daughter's other favorite show is kid, uh, Kids Baking. They love <laughs> Kids go. Baking. And I thought that they were into baking. And then uh, I realized they're not into baking. They're just more into the sweets. So like, <laughs> yeah. I was like, do you guys want to make it? They're like, no, we just want to watch the sweets. And I was like, oh, okay, fair enough. <laughs> Right. Careful, careful parent observer. Uh, I was, as, you, could, as, you could make them, you know, like, just like you did, <laughs> and you're like, let's just make this one cake. Oh and no, we've tried like cookies okay, and the whole right. thing. And they're like, ah, oh, we just like to eat them. Like, and yeah. uh, I was like, oh, okay, that, that works. Fair um, I, you know, as you're talking about this passion thing, uh, it, it's pretty interesting to like, you know, like everybody's kind of constantly putting it through their own lens and looking at their own reflection and thinking like, how does that look for me? And, uh, I, have figured out long ago that I have a tremendous fear of failure, but it's not a fear that's paralyzing. It's the type of fear that kicks me in the pants and wakes me up every morning. And so whatever the endeavor is, um, it's more about success and not losing and not failing at it more so than like the passion to like play the violin. I would learn to play the violin and I never played uh, the violin and played the guitar, but, um, I would learn it because I wouldn't want to go and have to play it in from somebody or in front of an audience and not be excellent at it. Mm. So, um, playing football, I mean, understanding that you don't feel like you would want to change it. 
Uh, it's, it's worked for me this far, but I mean, I, I played, uh, like I said, I played 10 years in the NFL and, uh, I would never have said like when people ask me, like, Oh, do you love to play football? I'm like, not really. I don't touch the ball, but what I don't like to do is lose. And it's every, and it's a incredible opportunity for me to train and to work and to do all these things so I can go out and basically just beat another human being for three hours on every Sunday in front of millions <laughs> of people. And it was so- like a, a very kind of aggressive and almost kind of a primal thing it's like i i don't care about the game i don't care about anything i just want to one-on-one fight this dude for three hours and you want to not fail and i don't want to fail um i want to not only win but i don't like uh i trained and like it was a weird thing like what motivated me was not greatness it was i didn't want to fail so i would say roughly speaking that you know four out of five paragons of grit that i interview um are are motivated more by the allure of success or the, like the, you know, they want to be excellent. One out of five says exactly what you say, almost verbatim. It's like, you know what? People think that I'm driven to be excellent. I'm really driven not to fail. I am like haunted by the possibility of failure every day. And these are people at the top of their fields, you know, like medicine, sports, entrepreneurship, CEOs. So I've always found that really interesting because my theory would have been that it was five out of five would be like positively driven by excellence as opposed to in a way negatively haunted or, you know, fearing failure. Um, so I find it really interesting that, you know, this isn't a phase. I think that like the people that I've studied who are like this are like, yeah, that's just the way they are like all the way through. Like, um, and, and they're not, they're not entirely unhappy about it for the most part. Like you said, it sort of like works for them. Well, but, uh, uh, but, but it's also throwing yourself in the deepest pool. Like, um, I stacked the deck against myself. Like for example, uh, I could have gone to an easier college. I went to Berkeley and chose to go in and go to a challenging school where I knew that, you know, uh, playing football and doing this would be difficult. Um, when I went to the NFL, like, you know, being able to go in and do that. And I was, you know, uh, like I got injured. I mean, I played 17 weeks with a broken leg and I remember them being like, do you think you can do it? I'm like, hundred percent, I can go and do this. And so I'm like, you know what, you take away one leg. And I still went out and was on John Madden's horse trailer that first game back Hmm. and played against an all pro. So I always thought like, there were things that I kind of purposely put myself in position to stack the deck to see and to almost test the theory. And I found that uh, when it was the the most stressful situations, the the loudest of crowds, like the biggest stack was where I found the most clarity and the most peace, which is by far the sickest thing I'll ever admit on a podcast. That is, so do you, did you have, you had, so most people, by the way, who fear things, right? So what's the extreme of a fear? It's phobia, right? And what do phobics do? Like if you're if somebody who is a phobia of, of snakes or airplanes, what they mostly do is just avoid them, right? And by the way, that's the whole problem because if you avoid your fears, you'll never extinguish them. And the therapy that you, you know, administer to phobics is, is remarkably effective and it's just exposure, right? So it's, you know, pictures of airplanes or snakes. And then, you know, eventually you get on one, if it's an airplane, you get old one, if it's a snake. But what I'm interested in your story of fear of failure is that, um, unlike most people, you wouldn't do the obvious thing, which is just to avoid competition altogether. So I'm wondering if you have any insight into why you wouldn't have done what you would just expect a fearful person to do, which is to avoid challenge altogether. Uh, I can't really explain it. Um, I just know that uh, the fear of not succeeding and that fear of failure is what's the drive, like wakes me up. Like, um, you know, people are like in the off season, you trained your ass off and you were had this singular focus 
Um, I've told these guys before. I, I remember one of the last games of the season. I think it was my second or third year. I went against a guy who uh, it, we, we had a heavyweight fight. It was a I, I did not feel like I left that game with the. Uh, as I wanted it. And I remember I went in and I was so mad. I ripped his picture out of the program and I put it in my wallet. So every time I opened my wallet, I'd look at his face and I knew that next time when I saw him, this, this wasn't going to happen twice. And I trained that entire off season. Every time you open your wallet, get money out. I saw that dude's face. And when I went in there to go play against him, uh, the fury of a thousand sons, I wanted this dude. Um, and I ended up winning that match or, you know, that battle that day. And like that, you know, like, to have like a, a dude's face singularly for like literally six months, it's all you you thought about that this opportunity when I meet this dude again. And I remember thinking like, what if he gets hurt? What if he doesn't come back and play? Or what if something he's not in that game? Uh, is it going to feel like lesser? And I'm like, well, if he does, if he doesn't show up, whoever's in that place is going to catch an ass whooping. And uh, I don't know. Uh, like I've always thought about the things that are fearful to me, or the things that excite me, and are the ones that I want to go after the most. So it's like. Yeah. I have a theory, which is that, um, so, so fear of failure and com- like underconfidence are two different things. So it sounds to me like you, you may be driven by fear of failure, but you sound like an extremely confident person. That's now, a fact. <laughs> yeah, like, I don't know if I get some backup on this, but. And the, uh, like literally the, probably the most overconfident team on the earth. Like we, we're basically like the dudes at Armageddon. <laughs> oh, uh, that's true. Send us into space. We'll yeah, do a hole. In yeah. We'll tell you. Yeah. In the media, we'll blow it up. You got it. I, I, yeah, uh, I have zero, but like, uh, I, but, um, how do I put this? Like, uh, for some reason, my entire life, my skill set has always been very good to be able to survive just about any situation. Like I said, you know, like getting on the bike or riding or, I mean, just whatever we've done, I've always somehow, come out on top on it interesting um and okay so and you have and 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 that's that's a confident statement right like you're also probably pretty confident that like whatever 2019 and 2020 throw you like you can handle it right like but but also like to go back to your book i mean the idea of um i learned long ago that if i just put my mind to it and i work harder and, um, like, I'll just tell you a little, like something that was super impactful for me was, uh, I was pretty young, maybe like five or six years old. And, uh, I remember I, I got woken up in the middle of the night and it was like this clank, 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 clank. And I went out and I looked and my dad was, uh, on the typewriter and it was like three in the morning and he was typing. So the next morning I asked my mom, I'm like, I saw dad on the typewriter at like 3am. And she's like, well, he's in this big case. So he works until about 10 o'clock, uh, 10, 11 o'clock at night. He comes home and he would sit down in his chair and like sleep for an hour or two. And then he would get up and he would do all of his billing. And this is before computers. So he had to physically type out all of his billing. And I remember my mom being like, and I was like, man, but he got home so late. Isn't he tired? She goes, yeah, but that's what you have to do to be successful. And I remember as a little kid being like, oh, if you have to get up early and do that work, like nonstop, like that's what success leads to. So when I was in college, I remember I I told my dad, I was like, you know, I'm super tired after practice. He's like, what you need to do is come home and go to bed and then wake up early and study. And I was like, like, what time? He's like, I don't know, like 4 a.m. And uh, I was like, okay, sounds good. You know, I tell my dad that. So the next morning, uh, I just went home, went to bed. I was planning on waking up early at like 3.59. The phone rings and it's my dad. He's like, just called to wake you up. (laughs) <laughs> and he called me just about every single morning at 4 a.m. on the dot, calling to make sure you're up and that you're studying. And that was just who he was. 
And uh, like that, uh, that work ethic and that where I realized like, if you want to go to Berkeley and you want to play football and you do these things, you're just going to have to work harder. And, you know, some people might naturally get it. If you got to put in the hours, you do it in because what's the other option? Failure? Well, that's not the option. So how about this as a, um, uh, by the way, it sounds like you did not only have a demanding mother, but also a fairly demanding father, right? Like it wasn't just. But my parents. dad's thing was more through example. Well, he's leading from the front. Yeah. Type like, deal. like and your my mom dad, was in back just cracking. The yeah. Wind. Just yelling <laughs> at us. Well, like yeah. ask these guys when my mom shows up, they're like, dude, your mom breaks our balls. Like, yeah. like it's just how she rolls. But like my dad's example like, yeah. was, was like, I mean, just uh, his whole thing was just keep moving, keep soldiering on, just keep yeah. going. Don't worry. You'll figure it out. So, um, so yeah, and I, 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 by the way, I think the most important thing that parents do is be, you know, role models. And, and like you said, it's 24 seven, you don't take a day off because, you know, kids are always watching you. Um, they're, you know, you could tell them all day long, you should be nice. You should be nice to other people of different races or whatever, but they're watching you, you know, they will do as you do, not as you say. So I completely agree with you about that, but let me, let me give like a, just a theory about this fear of failure thing. You know, what if you have that experience of like, I don't want to lose, then you try as hard as you can. And, and most often you win or you triumph, you master, you, you basically have reinforced a pattern where like you get rewarded essentially for the like, God, I hope I don't lose. Um, and then you rise to the challenge and then you're rewarded because, you know, human behavior, we are not that different from rats, right? Like we avoid experiences that are bad and we try to repeat experiences that are good, but sometimes experiences are complex. They have like different phases and maybe what you've been rewarded for again and again in your life is the, you know, this kind of sequence of like fear, failure, probably training your ass off, um, you know, to make sure you don't lose and like the horrible thing doesn't come to pass. And then most often, um, you know, being rewarded for that. Whereas the phobics that I was talking about never get into that cycle. They just like never get on a plane. So they've never been rewarded for going through the experience. What do you think about that? Interesting. I don't I know. I mean, it's talking to you. So it's like, uh, it, it was uh, so there was always like sports psychologists, uh, you know, obviously when I played in the NFL, we used to go meet with a guy named Kevin Elko uh, quite often. And he was, uh, you know, super interesting on like, you know, just being able to help people kind of focus. And I remember talking with him and he's like, there's probably a lot of things going on, but unfortunately it's working for you. So I'm not going to mess it up. Like if that's what you need to do to build yourself into this, like into the frenzy and into the mindset and have that level of intensity, he's like, however you frame it, if you can get to that place, it's going to be successful. He said, the only problem comes is as you, you know, like what happens when you don't do this job anymore? I'm like, well, then we got to challenge, channel it into other talents. And so I'm big on like skill acquisition. Um, you know, like I'm constantly, are you, are you not, isn't it true that most NFL players in retirement have like devastatingly tragic story? I mean, I've been told that some, you know, another fear of failure. No, that's why, that's why I, you know, we do all these things. Like my goal is to prove everybody wrong. Uh, that not only, uh, you know, guys that retire from the NFL are these one trick ponies. The only thing they can do is get on TV and talk about all the stuff they did in their twenties until they're in their seventies, which I find, uh, extremely, 
sad. <laughs> uh, sad that uh, you do something in your 20s and your early 30s and it forever is the only thing, the only tinting that everybody knows. Like, hey, Jimmy Cherry and, and Bradshaw and, and their... Luke's high school football well, championship. But, but like what? these ex-NFL guys are sitting up there and they you only know them for their glory days. And yeah. we don't know anything about them. And when I retired from the NFL, I was more than happy to walk away and try to reinvent myself. And, you know, I was a classics major, a rhetoric major in college. And I had always wanted to be this kind of renaissance person where, you yeah. know, I thought that people should be able to, to train. They should fight. They should be able to read. They should be able to, you know, be poets and fathers and parents and uh, all these things. And I looked at skill acquisition as this renaissance deal that um, I wanted to not only um, go out and do something new, but I also wanted to teach people a little bit about what I did to be successful. And Power Athlete and our company here is just really the, I mean, the culmination of all of my experiences with training. And um, I met both of these guys at seminars I put on um, and uh, have this podcast is extremely rewarding because it allows me to connect with people like you and have these amazing conversations that just expand my horizons and make me a better person. Well, not only that, but also validate some of our isms we've been saying forever. Right. So when we were in one of you, I think it was a uh, grit grows chapter, you went through the social multiplier effect. And one of the slogans we, we often talk about in the importance of training is having a training partner. Right. And that if you ultimately like if you're the strongest dude in the gym, which is John with us, like you're 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 doomed. Yeah. But go for find us, new, go find we're always friends. chasing <laughs> this guy. You know, so it's like that iron sharpens iron effect, which we always push out. And I just thought it was pretty cool that it it also rolls back into the social space and it makes total sense. Right. Yeah. No, it's interesting. I was just talking to a track coach the other day, yesterday, and um, he's one of those coaches. I know you, you guys would recognize him as soon as you. So just like great, like world-class coach, right? Because of course they're world-class athletes, but they're certainly world-class coaches. And, um, you know, he was uh, saying things that were very similar. And I, I actually think people, the best of us is usually brought out in groups. Also the worst of us, right? Like mobs and, you know, um, you know, terrible things like uh, Nazi Germany and communist China. But it's also true that the best in people is typically brought out in the group. Like we're, we're very few of us are the best uh, either in the moment or training over the long term, you know, on our own. And what I love about the social multiplier effect and this track coach, by the way, said, um, you know, it's not like the science of this, uh, like, gives me an idea that I've never had before, but it does give me a word for it. And also it sharpens and I'm like, Oh, right. Um, so I hope it advances. But what I love about the social multiplier idea is that it's really the idea of compound interest, right? Like the example that that scientist, um, James Flynn, it's called the Flynn effect, right? Um, that he's famous for. And the example that he gives is like, say people are playing basketball and, um, you know, you, you practice a little basketball and you get better, but because you are better then now you're tougher competition for the other four, you know, players on the team. Now, now they're going to get better because you got better. Okay. So now they're getting better. Now you've got them getting better because they're better. You get better. So it's this amazing kind of compound interest. And I, I do think that, um, uh, you know, the 21st century is a pretty good century to live in. If you really want to be a learner and you want to be a lifelong, um, you know, somebody who's like always chasing, you know, higher and higher level performance. Yeah, well, and but, it's, but, it's, but we also found that uh, probably one of the worst parts about this is that everybody wants to do it virtually. 
And uh, what do you mean it, by that virtually? Well, like, for example, like um, uh, we run into a um, so we prescribe a lot of online training programs. So it's a big part of our market. And what we do is being able to project out like uh, through our different training programs like Field Strong and Jack Street. And these are actually specific training programs within our methodology. Uh, but it's like daily workouts. Yeah, like daily workouts. So there's let's say there's a thousand people around the country that are all following a similar workout. And they're in this, I guess, ecosystem, this virtual ecosystem where they're kind of competing, but I always uh, imagine what if all of those people got to meet every morning yeah. in one space. And, well, it I mean, was... and we've been watching them, tr- like they've been tagging us on social media and we've been realizing a lot of them are like solo oh. athletes in their garage. So that's why we, we might be putting a little training camp yeah, together so, to get them out here. So like uh, they started tagging me and, and, and us in all these training things and they're all in these like extremely like destitute, like uh, I keep calling it like the fortress of solitude. They're like mm-hmm. early mornings, dungy places. And I was like, man, it's we awesome. Need, Don't get me wrong. We, we, yeah, no, we love it. But I was like, we need to have a training camp and get all these people to come and meet them and like train with them and like, like see how high their level of expectation is. And it's like, I, I was trying to spin it to these guys today, which of course, like it's my idea and Luke's over there, like logistically wise, you know, <laughs> yeah. like, like, like it's, it, yeah, he's trying to give me all the reasons. And I'm like, I don't know, but I just know if you can put all these people in a room, uh, we can create enough uh, electricity to blow this thing up. Like it's like field of dreams, but yeah, it, a gym it is. And, uh, the thing and like, and Luke, Luke and I talked about this the other day, like we think that the majority of the world, a lot of these problems come back from things that are so easy now. Like, uh, like we were talking about, like everybody's outraged by this. And it's like the person has to walk five miles to get clean water each way isn't really worrying about some slight on the internet, like uh, that somebody said this or this, like they're focused on, uh, you know, shelter, getting clean water and surviving their 10 mile walk. And so I think like um, a big thing that I saw and what was most kind of confusing to me is uh, I saw this lifestyle that I lead playing in the NFL that had this singular focus of like, I'm going to train the entire off season so that I'm ready to do my job and not fail. Right. But uh, when I retired, um, I was actually planning on, um, I was originally planning on going to law school before I went to the NFL. Uh, I was just planning to play for a little bit. I didn't really know anybody played in the NFL. So it kind of seemed like, a, like oh, maybe I'll go make a little bit of money and I can go to law school. And then that turned into 10 years. And so when I retired, I was planning on going to law school. And then this little company up in Santa Cruz, the CEO gave me a call. And the company uh, is now bigger now. It's called CrossFit. So the CEO asked me, hey, will you come in and help us develop our technology on how to train athletes? And I was like, you guys want to train athletes? He's like, we do fitness, but we don't know how to, or we don't train athletes. And I was like, well, I'm not a coach. I'm an athlete. And he's like, we want it to come from an authentic place. Somebody that's actually used a style of training. And I'm like, but my training doesn't look like yours. And through all this deal, I just kind of was like, hey, you know what? Why not? But my biggest question to them was like, do you think people really want to know this stuff? Like, do they really want to know, like, the singular focus that it takes to reach this pinnacle of elite performance and play at the highest level? And they were like, I think people do. And so I started a website, did seminars, and really traveled to every, you know, continent on the planet teaching this information. And we have a huge uh, demographic and just a huge amount of people that are really into not only using the training as a vehicle for, you know, better than themselves, but like, you know, uh, you know, to, you know, to teach them something to fail, to get better, to follow. I mean, and, uh, it's, it's all steeped in kind of physiology and training and this idea of like, you got to sharpen the blade to better yourself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's a, that's a really interesting story at, at many levels. And, um, you know, I've, 
often thought like everyone's ambitious. When I was growing up, people were like, oh, you know, that person's ambitious. You had this idea like one out of 100 people's ambitious. I think everyone's ambitious. You know, people are born ambitious. People want to be better. Um, they want to be the best that they can be. Um, so um, uh, I think it's a terrific thing. And I highly support your, I don't know how logistics are going to work out, but I, I do like the idea of getting people together in person, you know, evolution has not created a species that really was like designed to spend all of our time alone interacting with each other through screens um, and like 168 character like text messages. So yeah, we, people should be together physically, I think. Yeah, um, we, we just yeah. had a, a gentleman named John Howard talk to one of our coaches clinics who talked about some research around that point where they measured neural activity in a face-to-face -face conversation if Tex and I were face-to-face -face and they use that as like the baseline, right? And then they put us on a video chat and then they in measured the, that. In the telephone. Yeah. And then that was 50%. And then it was another order 50% lower on telephone. And then on text, it would like over back and forth via text message, the neural activity was like 10%, 5 mm -hmm. to 10% of what it was on like the phone. So now like you're seeing... Uh, just how much the nervous system's re reacting or interacting to uh, to that face to face person to person experience. And then my my question for him was like, how does dating work? Uh, like I remember. So like, you go like, out to dinner. Typically, the man pays. <laughs> text. Listen up, buddy. Typically, the, you no, ask a girl system. to go out on a date. A system. But, but like uh, like as I asked him, he's like, you know, now with all this kind of virtual app thing, like there's no like if somebody doesn't swipe and we were going through it, I'm like the. the like the days of like walking in and like, Hey, that's a, you know, that girl looks nice. I want to go talk to her, go over and buying her a drink and like getting to know her, getting her number and then taking her out. He's like, yeah, no, those days don't exist anymore. And I was like, really? I was like, but like, 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 and he's like, ah, people, I'm like, I, I'm kind of up for the fear of fail or uh, of like rejection. Like I was like going in, I'm like, dude, like maybe something like maybe it goes well, maybe it doesn't, but like, at least I played my hand. And then we'll see what, but he's like, nah, nah, it doesn't work like that. I'm like, God, that sucks. How are you going to teach kids about like rejection? Dude, that's and, a great point. Yeah. Right, like, I, I, like, what is that going to look like? I remember, I, I remember asking a girl on her going no. And me being like, Oh, Oh, I never had that because uh, I was a state champion and then I married my first girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I had girls be like, I'm not interested. And I remember being like, Oh, that sucks. And then, you know, you, you have to like regroup and be like, well, maybe I need to like, not just grunt, like, let me go out and say something. <laughs> something let me, intelligent. Yeah, let, let me improve my offering and fix myself. Maybe I look like a bum. Maybe I should get a haircut. Like, and then you're kind of like, look at yourself and be like, okay, now let me look at myself through the lens of this person. Oh, okay. Like, maybe I should brush my teeth. I mean, you know, like all them texts. I'm just saying when you brush your teeth, you should probably brush your teeth. Get a haircut, but brush your teeth. teeth <laughs> take a notes. Wear a clean shirt. <laughs> say something witty, you know, like. But not too witty. Yeah. <laughs> but like that piece, like. How do you pull that out of evolution and then just give them an app? I'm, I hope this internet. You know, we all sound on. old, by the way, all of us like, ah, oh, you know, like uh -huh. how are they going to learn how to interact with each other? I mean, obviously kids today are interacting with each other, you know, on these platforms in ways that maybe we can't appreciate. But all that said, I agree with you. There's something um, different about being in person. You know, you can get that from maybe a neuroimaging study, but it's also kind of like, I mean, right? It's experience. Um, so, uh, so I, I don't know what to do to reverse these things. You know, a lot of things that we would say, like, okay, healthy eating is a lot harder in a way because junk food tastes better today. It's been engineered to taste like great. They've got like the exact ratio of fat, sugar, and salt to like, be, you know, like who wants an apple when you could have, 
you know, something that's been processed. So I don't know how to reverse that though, right? Like you could be like, oh, it's too bad kids aren't spending more time with each other in person or like what happened to dating or, but like it's, it's, um, it's, it's not clear like how to reverse those trends. And it's probably true that you can't reverse those trends. My feeling is the best thing you can do is at least make people aware. Right. And mm-hmm. so, you know, education and knowledge, I think are the only things you can really do realistically well like you said you have daughters like i have daughters and i just kind of worry about like you know like what's there going to be their interaction like courtship uh and i yeah like i i'm i'm gonna try to raise them like 1950s style i'm gonna be like did the boy ask you on a, did he call <laughs> you on the phone would get along great well but like i'd uh, be like no he texted me i'll be like nope can't go out with him he's got to call you on the phone he's got to come over and he's got to meet your father and I'm going to tell my son the exact same thing. You need to walk over and talk to a girl. Don't text her. Don't use any of that stuff. I want them to straight up go 1950s, like old school style. Well, you know, they're going to be a distinct advantage because they'll be like, what are you doing? That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And like that, well, that's what I, I tell my wife with my son. Like uh, he's going to grow up because uh, not only is our office here on the property, but we have a big gym where we all train. So my yeah. little boy is going to grow up and it's like, not everybody has a big gym where daddy's friends all are Olympic athletes and like these, you know, different people come and train and lift weights and like you guys didn't grow up with that either i'm like no i think you're the only one so i'm pretty happy that he'll grow up in that environment of like you know not only training but lifting weights and field work and what we do out here on the ranch i have a question for you guys it's something i've been wondering about which is um you know if you look at uh physical well-being right like being physically healthy which you guys know a lot about and then if you look at emotional well-being right like feeling good and not feeling depressed and not being overwhelmed by anxiety and so forth. And then if you look at professional or academic success, right? So an adult, like earning money, having a job, having um, retirement savings, and for students, like getting good grades, getting into college, staying in college, um, having friends. So socially, these things are all correlated. In other words, like typically they go together, right? People who are physically healthy tend on average to be more psychologically well. On average, these are people who are doing better accomplishment wise and they're also more popular and they have healthier and more relationships what what have you thought about um you know about 10 years ago a school asked me you know what can we do to improve kids executive function and self-control and um i was just starting out in my career i was like you know i looked it up i you know looked around and i was like you know one of the things that it would seem is like your school, these kids get no exercise, right? Also they're eating total, you know, junk, right? Mm-hmm. So, so what are your theories about like how the physical then ends up influencing, you know, the, the psychological? Uh, Big time. I oh, mean, uh, well, I'll, I'll just give you a, an idea. Um, years ago when I was in Philadelphia and I can't remember the name of the school, but I asked to be the keynote speaker at a graduation and they picked me up in a limo and I went out to this, place out in like Bucks County. It was this big uh, kind of a state. And it was um, it was a school for kids that had been that were handicapped. And the parents basically warded them over. And then this school raised them and they had kids that had Down syndrome and other, you know, pretty severe uh, issues. And through um, working with these kids, they made them able to go back into society. And and I was pretty embarrassed because these kids get up and the mom's like, hey, I, uh, I dropped my son off here at six years old. And the school raised him and now he's, you know, 18 years old and he had this, you know, he had Down syndrome and now he's able to go out and live in society. And it was something I never thought I could do. And uh, I'm like listening to this and the guy gets up and he reads my bio and I got up and I was like, I've never 
been so embarrassed in my life for the fact that like what I've accomplished is nothing compared to what these kids and these parents have accomplished. But the one thing when I talked to the guy, I said, you know, what do you think the biggest piece in, in helping these kids become like more what we would say is normal? And he said uh, that the emotional and the mental is linked to the physical uh, like one-to-one that if the kids move better and they start exercising and like you push them athletically, uh, through movement, it helps develop the brain at a much faster rate. And so if the kids, um, he said for the most part, when kids are, you know, have some of these issues, they tend to be very sedentary or the parents tend to be able to want to control them. He's like, we just let them exercise themselves. And he really went this idea that, you know, uh, you need to get your kids moving. You need to make them as active as possible. If you want to see a, a, uh, like, I guess a regression in intelligence of our species, have them stop moving. And it was something that always stuck with me. And, like, you know, like get them moving as soon as you can, like gymnastics, anything that changes orientation, swimming. So they're in, in different environments upside down. And he went through this whole thing and it's, uh, mm. it's been a, uh, like a very influential deal for us with child development and, and quality of life. As you get older, anything that you associate quality of life is going out golfing, playing with your grandkids. It's all connected to movement. So mm. once we stop moving, it's harder to get to that position to enjoy it. And then that happens with the NFL players. Like we were talking about, most guys, when they retire, they stop training. They trained at this really high level to be successful for their job. And then when they stop, you know what they do? They, they lose the regiment of the team. They, reg, they lose, the, lose the regiment of, like, training camp and this whole schedule. So a lot of them gain a bunch of weight. Their joints start hurting them. And I, I joke around and say that the wheels just fall off the bus. So mm. for me, I kind of kept this idea, like um, – and I, I was on a podcast and I, I related it back to uh, um, when I was growing up, I loved uh, Kung Fu movies and any form or like martial arts, like Sundays we watch Kung Fu theater. And the one thing that always amazed me was like the old samurais and the old masters were always badasses. They always trained and they were always like moved better and they did this. And I'm like, well, when you see those old samurais, they're still badasses. And I was telling a guy recently, um, I don't know how many people know this, but uh, do you know how old Leonidas was at the Battle of Thermopylae? I definitely do not know that. He was 60 years old. Wow. So at the Hot Gates, Battle of Thermopylae, fought off 300 Greeks, fought off a thousand or a million Persians. He was 60 years old. And so like that piece always resonated where I'm like, you know, uh, the only reason old warriors go out to pasture is because they can't fight anymore. So as you get older, if you still train with that singular mindset of like, I still got to go out and do this job, then I feel like you can stretch the hands of time and you can push this and you can still be Leonidas at the, you know, doing your greatest work, what you remembered through antiquity for at 60 years old or like the old badass samurais. So what do you guys, you know, like, so if you were in charge of, I mean, you've seen all the graphs and also you can just walk around, but like we're, we're more sedentary than ever. Mm -hmm. We're definitely fatter, right? Like in every age group and you know, the saddest one is kids, right? Like what, so what would you guys do if you were in charge? How would you get we know we know that like kinetic classrooms are kicking off where kids can start to like ride a bike in their chair and that starts to pick up standardized testing. Uh, we know that recess before standardized testing mm-hmm. improves standardized testing scores. And I know testing isn't the best proxy for determining like intelligence or skill. We cover that quite a bit in in the book, but it just <laughs> goes to show that you, you're a little you're more receptive and more capable. Uh, neurologically after being active and we feel it like any even if people don't exercise if they were to get up one morning and uh, exercise a little bit before their coffee they'd feel so rejuvenated for that window why don't so, they do it already though right so um, there's some it, because it's not a habit 
I uh, think culturally. Well, it, it's culturally like I, I think if you're in the habit, like we, for the most part, train at like six in the morning. But we also know that if we don't show up, which it's at my house, it's hard for me to not be there. I better be dying, which I, you know. Long story short, yeah. there was a <laughs> there was a virus. Yeah, there, yeah. Uh, I got taken down on an airplane flight, but um, the it's it's not part of their routine. Like like it's too hard. It's this. I mean, I got to get to work. I got kids, so people don't make it a priority, not realizing like uh, it's your ticket to eat fountain of youth. Yeah, but I mean, it, it like when they look at the kind of like okay, I, I got to work. I got family. This it just becomes that adjunct, like that little extra piece of thing that you can kind of cut off. Kind of like you might go out to dinner to a nice restaurant, you'd have dessert, but you don't probably have dessert every night at home. So it's yeah. kind of like this little extra piece that can kind of be there or not. Whereas I look at it like it's it's really like the day has to start with it, and it's part of what we do. And yeah. it's hard. Like, but, yeah, it's but, hard, and people don't like it. If they're able to acknowledge the barriers that are in the way and pr- find a solution. So my brother-in-law, ex-college athlete, basically broke down every barrier we could at Christmas and finally got them nice. on, our, on our lean and able. Did this involve some drinking? Of course. It's a family <laughs> gathering. <laughs> and he's that's the only yeah. Yeah, It's the only way you get through family gatherings. So, But it, it's identifying these barriers of time, kids, and all this. So we... Uh, we got a program just exactly for that, where it's just moving 30, 45 minutes. And we all know how to move intrinsically. So it's just a matter of finding one, something he enjoyed. And two, breaking down all the barriers, time and giving him direction. Like most direction, people, that's that's we found most people will exercise. It's just don't they know where to don't start. know where to start or what to do. And that's been like a really big uh, piece for us. It's like I, I tell people, I'm like, here's the deal. Just plug in and do what I tell you. Believe me, if you follow it and you just do what I say, you'll get where you got to go. All you have to do is give me the consistency piece. And you just have to give me the highest relative intensity that you're able to handle for the longest period of time. And if, if you can give me the, you know, the most consistent effort and the highest relative intensity, you're going to reach put you your in goals. a pretty good place. Yeah. And I can get people to enjoy exercise more. Right. Like I think some people enjoy it. And also I'm thinking about people who have not yet started a habit and therefore they're out of shape. Right. And for them, it's really unpleasant, as you know. How what what tricks do you have for making it more pleasant? Uh, make it a communal thing. Is suffering, uh, shared suffering is, is a lot more fun than suffering in silence and by yourself, you know? So that's one option. Mm-hmm. Um, I always think of Callie when we came in the gym, just listening to Coldplay rowing in the dark. <laughs> so, uh, the girl who, uh, uh our, producer. Yeah, our producer and the, she works for us. She also worked for us at the gym years ago. And I remember we like came in the gym and the lights were all off and we just heard like Coldplay like blaring and we're like, what is going on? And she was just in the dark rowing by herself. And we were like, she's in a dark place. So Callie, if you're listening to this, but like, yeah, I mean, for, for the most part, I think people, um, like Luke said, shared suffering, but also accountability. I think having something to be accountable to, and usually a person that'll call you out on your bullshit. I think that's a huge problem today is everybody's so nervous to like call a spade a spade. And it's like, dude, you missed, you flaked, you aren't working hard. Why? And then they want to give you all the excuses. I'm like, that just sounds like a lot of excuses. Like we can restart this talk tomorrow after we train. And I think um, putting people in that position of accountability, and I think that's what we do really well here at Power Athlete with our programs, is there's a ton of accountability. Like all of a sudden people post and they know, and people are like, hey, where's so-and-so? And uh, that's, uh, that piece is, uh, has been good really virtually in just having a community. And 
finding that big goal. So like I said, all quality life is connected to movement. So finding something they want to do that is movement. And then like you discussed in the book, breaking it down to smaller and smaller, uh, different levels of goals. And then what's one of those small goals? Waking up at 6 a.m. or 15 minute walks post lunch or even parking at the farthest parking spot away. And then not everybody does that. No, no, they don't. So it's um, that's why you'll be at a parking spot if you ever wondered. If we can (laughs) if we can connect something that they want to movement, the solution is movement. Yeah. That's so insightful. Very wise, very psychologically wise. Um, But it comes down to Mm. it comes down to a lot of the. It, like there, very few people have a passion for this. So what's the other option? Because it, you know, for the folks who do follow our training and they're like are logging every day, like there, there's an element of grit to that. Right. And it's just, it's accepting the mindset that there's a positive outcome at the end of this. And I may not see it today, but if I commit to this for 30 days, and that would be my recommendation is like commit to 30 days, no matter what, try to, disregard all of your other hardships and barriers, but 30 days, you're going to see a positive physiological outcome. And then you realize like, Oh, okay. So this is almost like treatment for me. Right. Well, but uh, I've also found that the people that come in, they start training and they get in better physical shape, like not only like more capable, but also whether or not like this, the aesthetics are hard to measure. You look at yourself every day in the mirror. It's hard to see minute changes. But if and, somebody else. And yeah, I mean, I, I go back to one of my clients. Uh, I actually owned a commercial gym for a little while and um, I had a client who was very heavy overweight. And I remember she got laid off in like a weird deal and I hired her. She was way too uh overpriced and like way too uh skilled for what i asked her but i was like hey you don't have a job you want to come run uh, like manage my gym and so she came in and did all the back end stuff and i was like but here's the deal you have to train every morning and Mm. she was like okay i'll do it so she came in and uh she got uh like in really really good like like really good physical shape now like the uh, the actual um, like aesthetics were slower to come, but I yeah. remember her telling me, it's like, I, you know, I remember like she, she had a pretty big dog and I guess her dog got sick and she's like, I lifted the dog in the car. I couldn't do that before. And mm. so she started giving me all these milestones of things that she could do that she couldn't. And all of a sudden, like it empowered her in a really interesting way where all of a sudden she felt like, you know what? Like I was depressed about getting a, like losing my job, like uh, fuck it. I'm going to go out I'm going to get a new job. And she got a new job, moved halfway across the country. And she's like, I don't think if I had got fired and, and started training and developed that physical strength, I would have had like the emotional strength to be able to like move across the country and start over. And yeah. uh, she's like, I had to pick myself up from ground zero. And I saw that and like this piece empowered me to be able to do it when I didn't think I could. And I remember I was like, well, so, I'm sorry to see you go, but I'm forever thankful that you went. And yeah, this is a thing I appreciate about it in the weight room for teens, teens, especially female athletes, male athletes, because the the weight doesn't lie. And they may fear that movement or the barbell. But then guess what? You as a coach, you as a, a teacher, you're able to motivate them to do that, and they learn a true measurement of their abilities. And if they fail, guess what we're going to do? You lift more weights more times yeah, yeah. in the gym, you're going to get it. So it gives them consistent opportunity of how to face failure, come back, and then gain a, a true sense of self that maybe a, a sport coach or parent or another teacher is not providing them. Mm-hmm. That's what I love about the weight room for a teenager. And like, as a dude, like I'm in this industry, I'm passionate about our work and what it does for people. But like, 
I don't want to fucking work out every day. Like I, like I don't, it's a lot easier not to, but I do because I fear what it would be with like without the exercise in coming into this lifting weights for 20 years now, I guess I've been hauling, banging weights is like a lot of these opportunities and stories that you have in the paragons in the book, like they're, it's easy to make connections and kind of metaphors for also life's the life cycle of training over 20 years and John over 30, 40 years. Like, okay. So early on, like you don't really know what you're doing and you need a, a mentor to show you. Um, then you fail. There's an opportunity for failure. Then you have your mentor there. Who's going to tell belittle you, you, well, either belittle <laughs> you or provide an opportunity for, uh, an opportunity for growth out of that failure. And then all of a sudden what you've done here now maps over to sport if you're an athlete. And then you have a whole other set of coaches and mentors taking you through that license, that cycle of failure and overcoming and uh, a bad play or a bad game. And then next thing you know, like the the working out also carries over into like a corporate gig, like the suffering in the gym and the failure in the gym and the, the perseverance that you could put into either a barbell or whatever you're into at the time, the CrossFit it like helps carry over and helps you sustain the energy through a shitty corporate existence. And then it's are just you, so crazy. Are you telling us a personal story? Luke? Yeah, <laughs> for real. Like it was funny, but all of it came back to like this training and exercise and being coached and coaching and working out in the barbell. And, uh, you know, John, you have, uh, the lessons learned under a barbell quote, which yeah. is like kind of like a meathead deal. But if you've been doing this long enough and you're not a meathead, I'm not a competitive power lifter. I don't Olympic lift and compete in any of this shit. I just do it for my kind of like day-to-day -day wellness. You learn a lot from the, the training side of things if you start to take it seriously. Well, but I, you know, for me, I, I found that, um, every day I went in the gym, I got stronger and it translated into better performance on the field. And as I got bigger and stronger and it, it allowed me to do my job better, it became like, hey, these are vehicles for my success. And um, I just, for me, it was like uh, to always have a culture of strength was important. Uh, and like for my daughters and women, um, like my favorite athletes I always worked with were always teaching women how to lift weights and like teaching them that like they can be strong and that they should be able to be able to do these things and there is no damsel in distress. Like I want my little girl, girls to always grow up, be like, you don't need anybody to save you. Now, if you want somebody to save you, it's different, but you don't need anybody. You guys are capable, intelligent, very smart women that will figure this stuff out. And I want you guys to be strong. And so like, uh, the way we have a culture of strength, my wife gets up and trains every day and, um, she's actually in way better shape than all of us. And they see, <laughs> that's fact. Uh, that's a true statement. Uh, but like they see that in our, in, in who we are. And it's just, it's just part of the deal. And, um, like, like, I, I don't know how to explain it any other way other than like, uh, whether it be athletics and then, you know, whatever you're competing in, but it allows you to be able to do your job or whatever you want to do. Like, uh, you know, whether it be, I don't know, like, uh, he, you know, here at the ranch, like cutting down a tree or whatever. I mean, the, the strength that you gain in training allows you to live a more full life. Mm-hmm. I 100% believe that. And um, I just want to thank you guys. I um, sort of run down the clock on my end and I have to interview a graduate student for my university. But uh, have them join the call. We'll all do it. <laughs> Let them in. Uh, no, I've really enjoyed uh, this conversation and I love learning from you. And a lot of the things that you said, I, you know, I use that term psychologically wise, which means, you know, like basically using the manual for human nature in the appropriate way. So uh, congratulations on that. And hopefully it won't be our last conversation. Yeah, Angela, I hope not. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you.
All right. Take care. Stay gritty. <laughs> Thank you. So I was hoping to get into, did you guys get into the Harvard study? No. Which one what? was that? So uh, it was like they, man, I'm going to butcher it, but let's say 40 years ago, 50 years ago, they took a bunch of dudes out of Harvard, 20 of them, or 25 of Is them. Is this the prison? No. No, I didn't read And this they one. put them on a treadmill, and they did overspeed treadmill training with these guys and set, went to see how long they would last, right? So they oversped them, and they, like... It, and some guys lasted four minutes, majority lasted four and a half, and then there's, like, the top 10% who lasted five, right? Numbers are, like, you, you yeah. get what I'm saying. Um, it must have been more. No, it was, like, 120 of them. It was a lot of people. And basically, uh, they followed those dudes for the next 60 years, checked in twice a year. And all the dudes who fucking went over five, every single one of them, like, were like consistently gritty, I guess, based off of their data. And it like basically came down to, it wasn't an impossible task. Like, you know, you can run this fast, but it was about sustaining that just that notch over speed. And if you would sustain it for another 30 seconds, you had a higher probability of being successful. Wow. That's cool. And I thought it was pretty cool because like, it goes back to double A's fucking tens doesn't it about selecting an intern if he if he knew if he had an intern who would get after the fucking tens and go to failure he had a good intern mm -hmm. and it sounds kind of like a meathead deal but this maps over to what she's talking about with like the physical component of this like someone who's going to be banging weights and is willing to hit a rm and then is hitting willing to hit like a true max reps like jesus is just tapping in it makes sense why our training would would gravitate towards quote-unquote grittier individuals right like the the braskies of the world yeah yeah totally and they're like this is the shit because it provides that opportunity and consistent and it's like does this select or test um i don't know i just thought that was really fucking that was really really cool one um man and then i wanted to get into like you know uh for a long time at our seminars we used to travel the world we taught thousands of athletes 100 seminars one of our predominant sayings and slogans was effort is assumed how wrong were we well yeah i mean i i think that was a huge dig on the crossfit deal mm -hmm. like oh no I, like yeah. um, it was a huge kick on those guys where it's like people would come in and i remember uh that was coined when i remember roth and i were in this uh like mm -hmm. it, it was in one of the early seminars and this dude, like, literally butchered the fucking workout. And I remember, like, Roth went over there and was reading to do the right act. And he's like, I'm just fucking going hard, bro. Yeah. No, right? uh, effort like, is assumed. And, 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 no, it was, yeah. and, and like, he, he, like, and Roth was like, uh, going hard and fucking efforts assumed. What is the, uh, you know, the difference between the great or the fucking dog shit, as Raphael would say. It's fucking dog shit. And the fucking great is their ability to execute and, like, complete, you know, do, you know, the perfection of the movements. And I remember, Rob, I think it was Rob was just like, I'd fucking know you're going to go hard. If you mm -hmm. like, if you showed up to this thing and you fucking sandbagged it, like I would not expect that. Sure. Like everybody in the crossing community wants to go hard. What you guys don't understand is that there has to be a tempering with going hard and the execution of the movement. 
And that was just a huge dig at just the shitty CrossFitters that showed up and just did dog shit. Well, I think we continue. We let this roll in, roll out, be part of the episode. Ladies and gentlemen, another fucking amazing episode. That F was for you, John. Mm. You say I swear too much. You do fucking swear a lot. Do you know how many times you swore today? (laughs) Yeah, hopefully she. No joke. Oh, did I swear a lot? No, I I thought it was tasteful. I thought we did fine. We didn't. We didn't offend Angela Duckworth. She's a. I think she's. And she wants to talk to us again. Yeah. So, Uh, but I. So, I I really liked her. I, I thought um, I you know uh, the the interesting thing is all of a sudden I felt like she was interviewing us. Oh yeah, she turned the Asking table. For a friend there. And you know the best part is is I do that on podcasts. That's the best part. Yeah, yeah. own it. It was yeah. awesome. It was a great chat. Thanks for listening, people. Another episode of the Premier Podcast in, in strength, strength and, and conditioning. conditioning. Ing, ing. Ing. I was going to say I didn't get an ing out of that guy. Ing 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 ing. Bye bye. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. You can find Angela Duckworth's book, Grit, on Amazon or head to the show notes for a link. She's also got a TED Talk out as well, so take that opportunity to sit your little wee one down and tell them, hey, here's why mommy told you to ride your bike to the airport. Until next time, bye!